All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at the scriptures together. God, um, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you for this Easter Sunday. I pray, God, that you would um, open up our eyes uh, to behold wonderful things from your word. I pray that, uh, uh, God, you would give us hearts that are pliable, teachable, moldable in your hands, that you would teach us what you want us to hear. And that more than anything, God, that, uh, that we would see Jesus. He is, as we'll talk about today, Lord, the, the very point, uh, the very reason behind uh, what we're doing even today. And so, God, I pray that you would be glorified, made much of, and that God um, would help me to serve these, uh, these folks well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, my, um, if you've been here a while, you know my story, but if not, I will share a little bit about it. My, my entire life, up until 18 years of age, um, I could say very well was, was all about me. Um, I didn't grow up in church. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I knew little to nothing uh, about the Bible itself. So if that's you, welcome. I know what that was like. Um, I didn't know anything about, about the Bible, I didn't know about Jesus, didn't know anything about the church either, so didn't know what was going on. But I did love sports. This is always one of my favorite stories to tell because I love sports. It, it kind of kept me out of, well, it, it kind of kept me out of trouble, um, more, than, more than I probably would have gotten into. So I am thankful for sports. But I loved watching sports, and I would watch games, and there was always, this is back in the, you know, the 80s, early 90s time, I would always watch games, maybe somebody's, you can remember this, I'd always watch, you know, whether it was a baseball game or, you know, behind home plate, there was some guy behind home plate holding up a sign. It said, John 3.16. Do you ever see this? Or he's at a football game at the 50-yard line, you know, holding up a sign. Or he's at a basketball game in the front row with a sign that says, John 3.16. I remember for the life of me, now you may know what that means. Some of you may not know what that means. I had no idea. So I remember watching this going like, why can't John find his seat in row three, seat 16? Why does someone have to direct him to this? Or my other thought was, why, does, John need to, does John need to call this guy at 3.16 p.m.? Like, I'm, I have no reference at all for what in the world this guy is holding this sign up for. So that's about how far away I was from understanding anything in the Bible. And if you don't know what John 3.16 is, you're okay. I was, that's where I was, too. All right? I, um, the, other, the other thing I remember is uh, when I first got a Bible, Got my, my first Bible, I was 18, and it was a Walmart special, right? P- plastic cover on that baby. I wish I still had it. And uh, it was my first one, and I got it. And if you've ever opened up one before, you probably did what I did, which was go to the beginning and try to find, like, what, where, the, where the chapters are, which you think are chapters are actually books. And you kind of read through all the names, and I remember reading through the names. I couldn't pronounce many of them. Uh, they kind of seemed strange. Like, one of them was called Numbers, and I thought to myself, like, well, like, I guess God gives you some help in you know, math and homework. This is a good, I don't really want to go to that one. I'm not going to go to numbers. But I remember flipping through some of them, and I got to one called Job. Otherwise known as Job, if you've been in the church for a while, you may know that. But J-O-B is Job in my book. So I'm reading that thing going, man, God not only helps you with numbers and math, he helps you find a job. And I had lost my job. So I thought, okay, this is perfect. So I, got, I opened it up, and I read the first two chapters. And if you've ever read Job, you realize he also lost his job, right? along with everything else in his entire life. And I'm like, close. I'm like, well, that didn't work, you know? Um, so I, I remember that stuff. I remember that. I felt better about my situation after reading his story, I guess. But I remember up until 18, um, I was seemingly always, as a, as a young man, I was very bitter. I was always arguing, always seemingly fighting with someone, something, always breaking stuff, which got me into a, a lot of trouble. And I didn't feel uh, as if I had anywhere to necessarily turn from my kind of broken life, 
uh, to turn away from my, from my broken family that I, I lived in. Um, I tried all I could to, what I would say today is fill the void of my soul. Didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but I was trying anything and everything to fill that kind of vacancy that was deep in my soul. And one day, I remember I, um, I, I stumbled into a church building. I was there. It was a Wednesday night. Didn't know they even had church on Wednesday night. I'm like, Wednesday night? It was youth group night. So if you're familiar with church, sometimes you have youth group night. And I uh, went in that room, and I, I was, at that time, I was introduced to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which honestly, again, at that moment, I didn't know that was a real person. I thought it was a word I used when I got angry. Like, I was like, oh, that's, that's where that came from, right? That's where the word, the name is. Okay, it's a real person. And so I was introduced to that and just mind-boggling, mind-blowing uh, understanding of that. And when I came to, to give my life to Christ, it took some weeks and maybe two months to kind of understand all that was the story of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and what that meant for me as a sinner and understanding all of that. And we'll unpack some of that today. But, um, but it, my life changed. You know, my life, instead of revolving around me, it started to revolve around Jesus, right, and what he said. Uh, my identity, instead of being maybe wrapped up in my own accomplishments, was wrapped up in, in Jesus. My will, instead of being submitted to peer pressure and things around me, was submitted to, to Jesus. My heart, instead of being drawn to the world, was drawn to Jesus. And subsequently, drawn to the church. Now, when I say church, I don't mean building, but the people of God. Like I was, I was drawn to wanting to be around them. Right? I want to be around other people that love Jesus too. Like This is, this is neat. There's more than just, just me. Right? This is fantastic. And so I was drawn to that. And, and what we find is that that in the Bible, that the church, otherwise called Jesus' bride, is something Jesus absolutely loves. He loves his people. He loves the church. And I, I wanted to be at the church. I wanted to be around the church. I wanted to be around the people. I, mean, I loved it so much, I became a pastor. Here I am, you know? It was like going into college and going like, okay, does anybody major in, they ask you what you major in. I'm like, can I major in pastor? And they're like, that's not a major. I'm like, can you find me a school that majors in pastor? And they're like, sure. So I ended up in Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York somewhere uh, is where I ended up. But, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, it was completely uh, transforming for me. And as a result, again, all of that, um, the church, the followers of Jesus um, as, as a people, uh, despite how broken, despite how flawed, despite how maybe even you've been hurt by the church before, despite all of that, they, those are people that God has died for. Those are people that Jesus came for. Those are people that, as we celebrate today, are people that Jesus rose from the dead for. And while in the church, you would think uh, that it would be all about Jesus, it would seem to make sense to me as I read the Bible that that's what it would be about. It's not always the case. Uh, in the church today, it's, it's interesting. You know, in a modern church in today's environment, you've got, you got non-Christians, you've got new Christians, you've got legalistic Christians, you've got bitter, burned out, de-churched, maybe Christians, right? And everyone's got their own ideas, Everyone's got their own things they want to emphasize and talk about, and there could be like some, some fighting going on, and it's just kind of the typical kind of thing you think about when you think about the church. They all have their preferences and their ideas, things they want to emphasize. But can I tell you that it's actually, it's actually pretty simple, that the church is about Jesus. I thought about, I'll do this a couple times today, so whatever music genre you're into, I'm going to hopefully hit that today. But as, uh, as Florida Georgia Line once said, it's simple, right? S-I-M-P-L-E. If you know that song, it'll be in your head for a while. As a church, we've been looking at Acts. And if, you, if you're new with us, again, on this Easter, know that it isn't a special Easter sermon, 
Okay, it's not, we're not specializing in a, in a special sermon today about Jesus. It is the theme of every sermon. It is the theme of the book. It is the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of the church. Um, and that's what we find in our next passage as we study. Is, uh, it's still the same theme. It's about Jesus. It's again, because the church is about him. He built it. He's working on it. Uh, he's using it to reach people. He's the head of the church the Bible speaks about. He's the chief shepherd. He's a senior pastor. And honestly, my job is pretty easy because I get up here and I'm just supposed to say and point you to Jesus. That's my job, okay? I'm not here to, to create all kinds of new ideas. I'm here to point you to him. Jesus put it this way. He said it himself, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. At the end of the day, this is all about Jesus. He's what our lives are about, what the church is about, what the entire world is about. And in our passage, we find Peter, who's one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, who the witnesses of the resurrection, he's preaching. And one of the outstanding marks of his sermon, as you heard read by Mick just a minute ago, is that it's very Jesus-centered, if you didn't notice that. Matter of fact, out of 16 verses, guess how many times Jesus is referenced or talked about? 16 times. Okay, so it kind of makes a pretty easy thing for me. I'm like, okay, I think this is pretty easy today. This is about him. And so we find that. And I want you to look at Peter's sermon with me, and I want you to see what he has to tell us about Jesus. And here's what we're going to look at. I'll kind of give you the outline, and then we'll kind of tick them off as we go through here, right? We'll see Jesus the servant, Jesus the righteous, Jesus the creator, Jesus the fulfiller, and Jesus the receiver, all right? That's what we're going to look at. Now, before we jump in, real quick context, if you're new, what's happening in the story is we got a guy here, down in verse 11, you'll see, there's a person who clung to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So you say, who, who is this guy? If you're jumping in here, like, what's, what's going on? And what we saw last time together, last week, we looked at the, the passage previous to this, is that the church had begun to move out of its comfort zone, engage the people that are around them in the city of Jerusalem where they were, and they were starting to connect and go to places frequently to connect there. And, it, and they found themselves at this temple. It was kind of the main center, not just the religious center of the, the, uh, the Jewish faith. It was the center of their the culture, center of their economic area as well. And so Peter and John, these two guys, two of the, the 120 or so, um, actually went, went, went to this temple every day. And they go there and they meet this man who was kind of a fixture. Right? He was always at this gate. He was always sitting there. If you, if you have a commute or if you drive downtown often, you go to the same spot, the same stoplight, you will a lot of times see the same person, kind of a fixture right there, right? Asking for money, asking for help. That's what this guy was. He was a fixture at a gate that everyone went through, that everyone saw. And this guy, we find out through later on uh, in chapter 4, he's, he's over 40 years old, um, and he is there, and uh, Peter and, and John meet him, and they heal him. He asks for money. He, they say, and, you know, we don't have a lot to give you, but what we do have, we'll give to you. Boom, get up and walk. And he did. And so the context, and we find this guy, he's up. He's walking. And he's doing more than walking. I mean, this guy's jumping. He's dancing. He's, he's you, pra practicing the feet he just got, right? I mean, this legs he's able to use. Born, unable to walk, now able to, right? So he's all over the place, hanging around Peter and John. And, they, and Peter and John take him with them into the, into the crowds. As crowds start to, to gather, you can imagine the commotion of seeing such an event. And people, thousands of people start getting closer and closer. The text says they were literally astounded, uh, full of amazement, is what it says in verse 11. They were completely shocked. And I always like to, to think about that as like my kids when they were little before a box of church donuts, right? This is, uh, I love this picture. This will give you a, they don't look like that anymore. 
They are uh, uh, 17, 17, and, and I'm sorry, yeah, 17, 17, and 16. I can't remember how old my kids are. Um, but that's them and church donuts. Aren't church, church donuts like the best, aren't they? Like, they just taste better on Sunday morning. And so they're just astounded. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed by what they're seeing. And it says down in verse 12, Peter saw it. He addressed the people. He said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though our own power of piety made, made, me, made this man walk. So Peter sees the crowd. He sees him stirring. He sees him pointing to that guy. You know, the whispers, like, it's that guy. He, was, he wasn't able to walk. Now he is. And they're pointing to him. And, and he realizes that the Spirit of God has now brought this all together. We've been talking about this in the book of Acts. The Spirit of God's kind of bringing up these opportunities. And here is one. And I don't think Peter and John necessarily set out that day thinking, okay, here's what we're going to do. And here's how this is going to work out. <laughs> it was something that God did as they were out. And they would have to get used to it because, again, the Spirit would, would bring up more opportunities. So Peter looked at it and goes, well, this is a no-brainer. I think I'll talk about Jesus. And so he does. He opens his mouth. Mouth, he begins to answer their questions. And the first question they kind of had was, what's up with this guy? Like, how, how is he able to walk here? How, what power, what ability, how is he able to do that? And what Peter notices is that the people thought that, thought that maybe Peter and John were something special. Right? There were, at the time in history here, a lot of uh, wannabe messiahs, okay? Wannabe, you know, messiahs that had their own little followers, and they no doubt thought, like, oh, must, Peter must be the guy. Maybe he's the messiah, right? And so it would have been easy for Peter uh, to have a following that day. People hold him up as the man, but he could have turned the focus on the miracle itself or had this guy, this, this guy who could walk, have him share about what happened to him. Instead, he deflects attention from himself Instead, he deflects attention towards Jesus. He humbles himself. And the first thing he makes clear is that, guys, this is not about me. We are nothing special. We had nothing to do with this guy's healing. It was all Jesus. Let me, let me tell you about him, okay? Uh, and so that's what he does. And so this guy was healed not because Peter and John were powerful and strong, able men, not holy, pious men, or any of those reasons. They, the first thing they do is Peter just got out of the way and pointed to Jesus, right? And that's what's happening, that's how S-I-M-P-L-E, right? It's how simple it is. It's how simple it is. It's pointing to Jesus and get out of the way, and that's what he does. So look at uh, verse 13. The first thing he says, he talks about Jesus, the servant. He talks about here, he says that uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. So what Peter is doing, this is really important here, is he's saying he's proclaiming not some kind of new religion, okay? Not some new thing he's invented, He's simply saying that this is a fulfillment of God's ultimate intentions in all of history. Jesus here is called the servant. That's an important word. If you go back to what we call the Old Testament, that's kind of the Bible's kind of broken in half. There's old first part, new the new part. Uh, doesn't make the old not good. It's just old and new. And the Old Testament was what, what the Jewish people would have had as scriptures. And one of their books, one of the prophets, one of the books there is a book called Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah, it speaks about this person, this Messiah that was coming, who would be called the servant. And you'll see that throughout the book of Isaiah. And so that's a very specific reference to Jesus back in that book. He came to this earth on a mission of service to the Father. He submitted himself to the mission, to the will of the Father. And Jesus would say this over and over again. Um, for example, maybe, maybe some verses you may be familiar with in our Lord's Prayer. The first thing he says there, and when he teaches them how to pray in Matthew 6.10 your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? I'm submitting myself to your will. I'm a servant of your will. 
in the garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was betrayed and crucified. His, his prayer was, Father, if this cup cannot pass, uh, unless I drink it, your will be done. Right? So he's submitting himself to the will of the Father. And as a result of Jesus serving the will of the Father, that means he, we get the benefit of him serving us in that process. Right? He served by taking our place on a cross. Jesus would say this in Matthew 20, verse 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This verse, along with a host of others, indicate to us that the Father had a plan to rescue the world from sin and shame and bring us to himself, and it would involve the death of his own son. And this was the plan that God had in mind before time began. Jesus' death was not a plan B. It was not a, oh, oops, I guess we'll figure out something, we'll make the best of it. It was all part of the plan. We saw this back in Acts 2. Verse 23 speaks about that fact that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was all part of the plan. And this is the story of the Bible. From the beginning to end, it's, it, it's, God creates humanity, we rebel, he subsequently sets out on a rescue mission to bring us back, and he had to come get us. Do you understand that, right? He had to come get us because we weren't going to make our way back. And honestly, as the Bible indicates, and if you are true to, your, you're, true to yourself, you're understanding yourself, we didn't want to get back, okay? We were running as far as we could away from God, and he had to come get us. And so the father tells the plan to the son. The son says, I will go for your glory and their good. And so Jesus was born as a servant. He lived as a servant. He died as a servant. He rose again as a servant to the father and to us. Think about how important that is, because it could have been differently. Jesus could have come as a conquering king. He had all the power and authority, could have squashed us, wiped us out, could have started over again, scratched that plan, let's go with plan, let's go another plan, right? It could have done that. Had every right, because he was righteous, we'll talk about it in a minute, could have done that, but instead of coming as a conquering king, he came as a suffering servant. So Peter goes on, verse 13. He talks about whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom he had decided to release. So this servant who came to rescue us, who as, who as God could have squashed us, came um, as... Reed once put it in the song with arms wide open, right? And he, he took those hands, and we took those very hands that God had, the very, the very hands he had, and we drove nails through them. And Peter says we literally betrayed him, as, as the language says. We turned, get this, we turned on our own rescuer, just like Judas did. Peter basically says we're all little Judases. We, we all exchange uh, Jesus for the world. We trade him in for whatever uh, the latest craving or desire is that we have. And Peter says these guys traded Jesus in because it, it, he wasn't what they expected, you see? He, he wasn't what they expected. He, he came to redeem them, and they really just wanted somebody to rule for them. They misdiagnosed their need, just like you and I do, right? We think we need a Jesus Band-Aid, right? I need a little bit of pack, patching up here uh, a bit. Uh, the Jesus caffeinated pick me up. I just need some, some, some help out here, maybe even a, a life vest to help us get on the boat, but we don't realize, as the Bible describes us, we're actually dead on the bottom of the ocean, right? I mean, we need, we need Jesus more than we realize. Um, we need him to serve us much more than we think. And here's the thing, the audience that Peter is speaking to, understand this when he speaks about this, they are a highly religious audience. Uh, they claimed to be serving God, but when Jesus came, it revealed that their very religion was all about serving themselves, you understand that? That's what it was about. Um, God was simply kind of a pawn in their little game, a means of getting what they wanted. They would invoke the name of God 
um, and declare loyalty to him as long as God got them what they wanted. People of modern day today do this a lot, right? This is kind of what happens. People get religious, they go to church, do that sort of thing, and they just invoke God to get, to get, get what they need. And friends, Jesus isn't a religious toy, right, to play with. Or he isn't a symbol of morality. Jesus isn't a flag to fly for your political causes. He is a servant of the Father, a servant of each of us, and not to our, for our own agendas, but for his agenda for us. Number two, Jesus the righteous. Now, he goes on to talk about that Jesus is not like us. He's not like us. Someone has once said that um, God made man in his own image, it says in Genesis, and today we're just returning the favor. <laughs> we're, just, we're returning the favor by making God in our own image, right? We're creating him how we want him to fit, make sure he fits into our lifestyle, fits into our culture, make sure, make sure everything goes along with, with what it is that we want. But he's completely different from us. Look, verse 14 says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So this Jesus wasn't just, wasn't just man, he was God, right? He was, he was God and man together. He is God Almighty. He keeps your, your heart beating every second. He puts air into your lungs, he, and he's extremely upset at, at sin, so much so he's willing to die to eliminate it. So it, doesn't, it makes him, he's not your buddy, not your pal, your bro. You know, he is God Almighty, as he says here. And this idea of Jesus being holy and righteous, God was astonishing for them to hear. First of all, for the Jewish audience to hear that. Like, hold on, you're saying Jesus is the holy and righteous one? So he's referencing them as God. But think about the Greek audience for a minute. The, the Greek meaning the, the kind of, or the Gentile audience, the non-Jewish audience. They had their own religion. Maybe you've read books about this and the pantheon of gods and all the things that they believed in. Uh, it was astonishing for them to hear. The Greeks talked of gods in fascinating terms, but the gods that they believed in were just kind of men and women writ large, right? Um, they apparently engaged in the same jealousies, adulteries, and murders as people on earth. They had no concept. They had a concept of God, but no concept of a perfect and holy God. At this time in history, matter of fact, there's a lot of writings about this, that there was a growing dissatisfaction with the worship of gods with human characteristics. They were kind of growing frustrated with it. They started to realize that they, they weren't much different than themselves, so what's the point, right? They started imagining that there, could there be a god of the gods? Could there be someone up that's actually not like us? One of their uh, Greek writers said, quote, there, there must be a god, the greatest of gods, and unlike us in appearance and might and thought. And so this explains some of the rapid growth of Christianity. We'll see this in Acts 13 when it begins to go outside of Jerusalem and it goes to the ends of the earth. It just takes off like wildfire. Because, uh, because for them, the, the Christ, Christian faith was all that Judaism was not. There was, there was a supreme God who you didn't have to access through some kind of rituals or sacrifices. You didn't have to go through that whole circumcision thing, which was a big you know, plus for the Gentile men. We were like, I don't really want to join because of that reason, right? Uh, there was different reasons for that. And the Greeks, were, they were just like you and me, right? We, wanted, we want a holy and righteous God, we do. You say, um, I could really care less about a holy and righteous God. I came here because I had to, right? <laughs> I was forced. Um, but we do. We actually want righteousness deep inside. And that's why your radical insecurity will lead you to base your self-image off of your own achievements and performances. This leads you to either two, one of two ways. Either leads to extreme pride uh, when you think that you actually got it, all right? Or a crushing fear when you don't. It leads you to put others down, find fault in them so you can try to even the playing field, all right? We're working for righteousness. 
And when many in our culture don't feel they have enough righteousness, right, they try to fix it. And what do they do? A lot of times they'll do, try to do good things. Uh, maybe go to church, you know, do some good deeds, give some money, build up their moral resume so that, uh, so, that, so that it feels better about themselves. And that's in the Bible called self-righteousness, right? We're building our own. Um, but here Jesus offers you as, to give you his righteousness. He offers, as the, the old hymn put it, for you to lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and then stand in him, in him alone, wondrously complete. That's what he offers you. He, in other words, he also offers you to give you his rightness, and take your wrongness. But here's the deal. He requires everything of you. <laughs> he requires you to basically file moral bankruptcy and admit that there is nothing you have done to achieve or earn his favor and right. right? And people don't like that part of the deal. Right? They want to they keep their moral resume for leverage, not just for other people, but for God. And be like, no, you can't do that. I've done these many things, good things. You owe me now. So notice now Peter says that they, they asked for a murder. You see that part of the story? And this is a story he's echoing back in the Gospels. Um, there was a story there where right when Jesus is, at Jesus' death, he was offered to be set free, if you knew that or not. He was offered to be set free. The pilot, who was kind of the, the leader, uh, Roman kind of leader, judge at the time, judged Jesus and goes, uh, I think we should let him go. I don't think he's really done anything deserving of death. And he offers at that time, he offered a plan. He thought, hmm, let me think of the worst person I could possibly imagine put him out there and say, hey, guys, make your choice. Right? I'll be a good judge here. I'll, I'll, I'll be on your side. Choose one or the other. And so this guy's name was Barabbas, is his name in the story there. And, uh, and he was a man who basically, modern day, be more like a, maybe a gang leader. He was a guy who, uh, sub, who actually corrupted their sons and daughters, led them on kind of campaigns against, against the government, against others. Um, he's one that, uh, that actually killed some of their own children, and Pilate offered to set free either Jesus or Barabbas, and I'm sure he was thinking that this is an easy one. Surely they're going to set, you know, they're going to set Jesus free. And a shocking turn of events: the whole crowd rallies together, like like blood in the water with sharks. I mean, they just kind of in a frenzy, just all offered up and said, "Crucify Jesus, kill him." And that, which is very, it's very interesting, very weird to think about. You say, why? Why? Why would the, why would they choose to have Jesus kill and let Barabbas free? Like, who does that? You see, Barabbas might kill them, and he might kill their children. But in their minds, they could send out a legion of soldiers, right? They could barricade themselves into their own house. They could throw in some, some tear gas there. They could squash whatever Barabbas was doing by brute force, right? We can protect ourselves. We'll, we'll take our chances. You could always stop Barabbas. But how do you ever stop Jesus from taking away their hard-earned religion, how do you do that? How do you stop a man with no guns, no swords, no arsenal, but he's shaking the whole world up, right? That's where they're like, their answer was, we gotta kill that guy because we can't stop him. We gotta kill him. And so they did. He couldn't be allowed to live. You see, Barabbas may steal a few things from you, but he won't demand everything from you, and that's the problem. People would rather be exploited, lose a little bit here, lose a little bit there, as long as they hold on to what they sense is their life than surrender to Jesus. So we have to embrace the card whole truth that we're completely unrighteous people. We are all like Barabbas. We don't have a moral leg up on anyone else in society. We are spiritually bankrupt. And when we own that and we look to Jesus and his righteousness, he gives us his rightness and we are set free right, and forgiven. Number three, he tells us here that Jesus is the creator. Verse 15, isn't that an interesting language? Look at that. You killed the author of life. That's a 
It's almost an oxymoron there. How, how, how do you kill? <laughs> how do you take life from the author of life? The one who gave life, you took his life. It says they, in other words, they, they killed them, they killed God. Can you imagine a Jewish person hearing those words? Hey, you know what? You killed God. <laughs> the one that made them. He's the one who gave them life. He's the one who can take life at any moment. In the book of Job, also known as Job to me, but Job 121, he said, um, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? So this is a, a reference to God's ability to give and take life anytime. Uh, in the New Testament, Colossians 1, uh, 15, speaking of Jesus, says he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he's the manifestation, representation of God. And it says he's the firstborn of all creation. The word there is to be preeminent or above all of creation. It says, for by him all things were created, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of it. All things were created through him, for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. I love that last phrase. In Jesus, all things hold together. He not only created the universe, he actually sustains it. He literally holds it all together. He keeps, he keeps uh, all the bodies in space, as it were, in their motion. He's the, the energy of the universe, not some impersonal cosmic force that people try to tap into. See, without Jesus holding all things together, the world would literally fall apart. Even with the nucleus of an atom, for example, eight neutrons, eight protons, all that would repel each other, uh, but they don't. Scientists have a phrase for that. It's called nuclear glue. It's what holds it all together. We don't know how it happens. It's just nuclear glue. I call it Jesus. Okay, that's the Bible calls it Jesus. He holds it all together. And it says here that Jesus, the author and giver and taker of life, had his life taken away. How in the world did that happen? Because the Bible will say he humbled himself to do so. Man had no power to do it, but God lowered himself to the level of created being and die because it was the only way, by the way, to destroy sin without destroying us in the process. He couldn't just have a little surgery and extract it out. It was the only way to get rid of it. Think about the scene of the cross for a second. Jesus, the creator. Think about that scene. Go back in your mind. If you remember the cross and what happened there, Jesus made the sun and it was beating down on his brow that day. He made the ground upon which his feet dragged and his blood dripped. He made the tree that was now carved into a cross that he was to be, he was to be fixated to. He made the rock that was chiseled down into spikes that were driven into his hand. He made the minerals for the, for the very hammer that was used to drive those spikes in. Jesus made the muscles of the people who, who, who moved the hammers to drive it in. He made the hill upon which his body was suspended on the cross. He even made the voices of the people that surrounded him and mocked him. He made that entire scene and yet submitted himself to it for you, for the glory of the Father and for you to be rescued. And as Peter says here, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, the father raised Jesus from the dead. He went into death, busted a hole out the back of it, and bid us come through. Number four, Jesus the fulfiller. Verse 18 says, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Now, Peter's going to start listing off a lot of different Old Testament people. He begins to rattle off witnesses, okay? He brings all these witnesses, as T.I. said, they're dead and gone, okay? These are dead and gone. These guys are long dead. They've been dead for hundreds of years, some thousands of years and he brings them up, and he, as it were, parades them, as it were, before the audience and tells about them. It says they all believed in Jesus, and they all spoke about Jesus. I don't know about you. If you've ever picked up the Bible, start reading it, you're going like, man, there are a lot of rules here. There's a lot of stories I don't understand. Like, what is going on? And, and you start realizing that, that the whole Bible is it's very different than maybe what you thought. 
The Bible's not about you. I've always said this a lot here to you. The Bible's not about you and what you need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. It's a whole different way of understanding, looking at the Bible. And that's what, he's, that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying that the Bible, all those writers weren't writing because for you to earn your way to God. They were writing to point you to your need of Jesus. And so he goes on here, and, and, and Peter would do this. He has 11 different prophecies he talks about here in chapter 2 and 3. But verse 22, he talks about Moses. Now Moses, if you're familiar with him or not, Moses was the man to them, right? He was the, he was the, he was the big guy in the Old Testament for them. And he says here, Moses said himself, this is quoted from Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to him shall be destroyed from the people. So Peter's just saying, look, I, I'm not making this stuff up. Moses, Moses pointed you, talked about Jesus. And he goes in verse 24, and he says, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and all those after him. You say, who is that? That's everybody else, <laughs> okay? That's everybody after Moses. That's every other prophet, every other writer that's in there is all speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the final prophet of Deuteronomy. He's the Davidic king of the Psalms. He's the promised, uh, promised one of, of Abraham in Genesis. Peter's saying that every major figure in the Bible, take it David, Moses, Abraham, Esther, whoever you want to take, was really a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus. That makes Jesus the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, Right? He, is, he is the ultimate king, the greater David, the ultimate universal blessing of he's the child of Abraham. He's all those things. This is what Jesus did, by the way. After he resurrected, there was 40 days. And I called it the post-resurrection Bible study that Jesus did with his disciples. For 40 days, he started with Moses, the first five books, talked about himself, and then went through all the prophets and everyone else written and talked about all of that pointing to him. If we don't see the Bible like this, Right, that Jesus is behind everything in the Bible, we'll only read about moral examples that load us with guilt and pile on a law that we can never live under. Jesus is what the entire Bible is about. He's the fulfiller of every law, and he's the fulfiller of every story that's there. Um, another way of putting this, I'm gonna show you a little video here. I've showed this a couple years ago, but I just really like how this puts it all together to kind of help you see the story of the Old Testament. So if you can your attention, attention to the screen there, you'll see uh, what I'm talking about there.
one last, one last point we have here, beginning in verse 19. Let's look at Jesus the receiver. Thus far, Peter has said, Jesus is a servant that they betrayed. He is the righteous one they disowned. He is the creator whom they killed, and he is the fulfiller who they disobeyed. But there's hope, right? Despite the fact that we have betrayed him, disowned him, disobeyed him, even killed him, God will still receive us. God, just like Joseph, took what was meant for evil and turned it into good. The cross, though grotesque and gut-wrenching at the same time, is beautiful and stunning at the same time. Look what Peter says, verse 19, repent therefore, turn again that your sins may be blotted out. He's calling to repent, and we're to repent for good reasons, right? He tells him to repent, and literally the word is to, to flee to God is what he is. He's, he's representing us to flee to him. In the Old Testament, there were these cities set up called the cities of refuge, where if someone accidentally uh, killed someone else, they could run to that city and find refuge from the, the person who was seeking their revenge after him. And so Peter's telling them that though they are guilty, they, they wouldn't be destroyed if they would flee to Jesus who is their refuge. Psalm 2 verse 12 says it this way, speaking of Jesus, kiss the son lest he be angry. You perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take there it is refuge in him, who flee to him. That's what repentance is. Turning from your pursuit of sin to running to Jesus' refuge. And it's gonna... It, it's gonna um, to talk about to Jesus here, but to seek him, know him, love him, serve him in light of what he has done for us. And notice what Peter says is waiting us when we turn to Jesus. Look at, look at what he says, and I'll give you some words here to kind of put the, word, put the uh, ideas together. Verse 19 is the idea of expiation. Maybe a new word for you. Hang with me for a second. That's the idea of that blotting out. That's the idea of canceling, taking away our sin. That's what he means by that. Um, it, was a mean, it means to cause something to disappear by, by wiping it away. During this time, this time in history, ancient writing was upon papyrus, and the ink didn't have the, the acid that it did today. It did not bite into the papyrus, but it kind of laid on top, and all it took was a sponge to kind of wipe off the writing, wipe off what was written down. And that's what expiation is. God offers to wipe away the sin. God does to our soul like we do to our clothes, right? Every time you do laundry and every time you put on clean clothes, think about what God has done to your soul, right? Wiped it clean. Colossians 2 speaks of what Jesus did there. It says, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, right? All the things, we, all the debt we had towards God, all the failing of, of living, fulfilling the law ourselves, all the failure of doing those things, he nailed it there. It says, set aside, nailing it to the cross, Think about that. God literally offers to wipe the slate clean, to expunge the record. And to, here's the thing, and to never bring it back again, back up again. This is just a couple of these. Isaiah 38, 17 says, you, speaking of God, you've cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 4, 3, 25, I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 19, you would tread our iniquities, our sins underfoot. You would cast our sins into the depths of the ocean. That's what Jesus offers. That's expiation, is to wipe it clean. The second part is another word that you may not know, propitiation. We see this in verse 20 where it says, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So this idea of propitiation is the idea of satisfying or quenching the judgment that we deserve. That's what kind of the reference when Jesus says refreshing, times of refreshing. It's not like your, you know, your sweet tea that you had or something like that, refreshing. That's not the idea at all. It's actually the idea of satisfying uh, the wrath of God. Matter of fact, it's the same word used in the Old Testament for Pharaoh 
when, when the people of Israel finally left and they finally went away, he felt this relief that the judgment was finally done, the plagues were finally done. It's the same word used there. You say, how does God remove judgment? How does he satisfy justice? How does he quench his wrath? He offers to apply that to the count of Jesus if we turn to him. Apart from Jesus, the Bible speaks of we are an enemy of God. Eternal consequences lay upon our own heads, but Jesus offers to absorb that. Remember, there was this practice in the Old Testament called the Day of Atonement, modern-day word we use. Maybe you heard the word Yom Kippur. And in that celebration, they would have two, two goats, and they, they, would, they would symbolically they would, they would, uh, be symbolizing um, one dying for our sin who would be sacrificed. The other would be let go. They called the scapegoat would allow him to run away. And that's really the picture here, right? One paid the price, one gets carry, carries it away. Jesus was both of those kind of goats for us. He was both the expiation and the propitiation. He wiped it clean and took it away. Lastly, it says here there is restoration in the promise of repentance. It's the idea of turning, uh, Jesus returning to make all things new, to make a new earth, to bring justice and peace and his presence to earth. Everything will be the way it ought to be. No more sin, no more injustice, no more chaos. He says in verse 21, heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things of which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. You see, we've talked about the whole story of the Bible. The whole Bible is separated like in four acts of a play. Creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. That's the final act. That's the whole story of the Bible. That's what he's speaking of here. But early on in Genesis, there was a curse put on earth, and there was this steady decay and unraveling of all, all of the creation that one day will be reversed. And not only will people be renewed, but the whole creation will be renewed. This means that Christians do not only hope for their individual personal restoration of the soul, we also look forward to a complete restoration of the entire universe, where all sickness and death and disease and decay will be healed, where all sin, evil, hate, and injustice will be no more. That's the promise made sure because, as we celebrate today, that Jesus rose again. So why? Why repent? Why turn to Jesus? Because the very things you are searching for are only found in Jesus. You are trying with every fiber of your being to get rid of the guilt, and no amount of good deeds or positive thinking, whatever it is, can remove it. You want to know deep down that what you have done will never come back to haunt you, that your sin won't be held over your head. You want this world to be a place of peace and love, and yet you know no amount of grassroots campaigning, marches, celebrity endorsements, or giving of your time and money is going to solve it. Only Jesus can do that, right? He is what life is all about. He is who you were created for, right? And so as we kind of finish up our time here, and I'm gonna stop talking so I talk a long time, we're gonna take communion. Now, if you're new with us, this is how we do this. And why we do it. First of all, communion is a celebration, a remembrance of what Jesus has done. And what we want to do is take some time to think, reflect personally and corporately on what Jesus has taught us from the passage. And in doing so, we take that little in the cups in front of you there. There's a, there's a, the cup holders, there's a cup. It's got bread, it's got juice in it. And Jesus instructed us as his people to take it in remembrance of him. There's bread that is a symbol of his body broken for us, and there is juice as a symbol of his blood poured out for us. We do it in remembrance of him. But before we do that, we take time to reflect. We take inventory of ourselves, of what is, what is it that God is speaking to us. If you don't know Jesus, this is not, not for you, okay? But we're gonna have some quiet time. It's okay. You may feel like it's a little odd because it's like really quiet in here um, for, for a few minutes. 
but that's because everyone's kind of talking to God, taking some time to reflect. You are invited as well to talk to God. That's what prayer is, by the way. Don't make it more than it is. It's just talking to God, okay? And if you have questions, we'd love to answer them. Afterwards, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna take, and then we'll, uh, when you're ready, you may open those cups and take communion. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Lord, this, um, this passage has made it clear, just like really every sermon we do here, that God, it's, it's all about you. It's not about our personal agendas. It's not about uh, the things we want to, to uh, uh, improve on in our lives or whatever it may be. God, it's about you. And God, when we get that right, that's <laughs> just, we have so much we're worried about, so much weighing us down, so much heaviness. And God, at the end of the day, right now, you're telling us that there's something way more important and there's something way better than all of those things. And that, God, one day you're going to return and make all things new. And the things that are just so heavy on us, God, we can let them go. We can cast all our cares upon you because as we have looked at on the cross, we know that you care for us. And you don't just care for us. It's not just weak empathy here, God. You rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell, and Satan himself. To God, give us a future and to give us a hope. Help us to live in light of that. And God, draw people to yourself as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.